Yo, Rob Harvilla from 60 Songs That Explain the 90s here to inform you that we are back with 30 more songs because the 90s were super long and had a ton of rad music. Please join us every Wednesday for more 60 Songs That Explain the 90s only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com. And joining me on the other line, the stock market crashes, but he stays the same. It's Andy Greenwald! Is that another thing that's happening today that I don't know about? I'm oh yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's in red at the top of The Washington Post. <laughs> Cool. Yeah. And then my wife texted to be like, we don't have any money. <laughs> JK. Oh, JK, would, you know, gold you know standard what, Chris, over here. I got it all Chris, in minerals. I, That's not going I, anywhere. I, I would check in with my money guy, but he has COVID. <laughs> so. 2022, baby. It's the watch. Uh, we're, we're, tell you what we're going to do. We're going to talk about some Jedis. We're going to talk about some dragons. We may do a little chat about some wizards. We're going to talk about Atlanta, and then Andy, you got the the mother load of all interviews. I feel like you don't really believe that. I feel like I, you've been look, trolling no. me for weeks. I, I kind of like how interviews have sort of now become like our away games, where it's like, while Andy's not looking, I, I interview the guy from Drug Church, you know? So for you... Yeah. No, look, Chris, I really like the band Drug Church, you sent me some songs. I was like, these are really good. And yes. then you're like, I'm having them on the podcast. And I was like, excuse me? <laughs> I, I, so I have on the podcast today a conversation with, with Stuart Murdoch, the band leader of the beloved cult group, Bell and Sebastian, who've been making not quite hits, but you know, fairly indie popular songs for 25, almost 30 years. You know, there's, there's a track record there. I have a question. Have we ever cleared up whether I introduced that band to you? You did not introduce the band to me, but you coordinated me seeing them live for the first time, not too long after we met. Right. So I, I almost alluded to this in the interview with Stuart. Um, I'm sure but, he would have been really into this story. Well, it wasn't the you part of it. No offense. <laughs> no offense. I, 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 although, for what it's worth, I am going to begin referring to you externally. Like when I like the public facing when I'm sure. talking to people, I'm going to start using the nickname for you that beloved author and we own the city showrunner George Pelicanos uh, coined over email the other day, which is the kid with the camels. <laughs> if only, which, which is amazing. Um, 
No, just that like in 1997, your guy, fan favorite, young Chris, was was a, a college student. A.K.A. Joe Camel. Yeah. <laughs> in, in Boston and saw that a band that I was super, super into, Bell and Sebastian, was coming, like maybe their first American tour or second American tour. And they were playing like a student union hall, right? Like at BU or something. Mm-hmm. And, and No, it was, and, it was, it might have actually been, it was on, in Kenmore Square. I can't remember if it was like a church or a student union or it was something like that. Yeah. It was affiliated with the university. And I know that afterwards we went, we walked, I think, to that spot, that diner that you loved. Uh, yeah, which I is now like escaping my, the name is escaping me. Yeah. But but it was memorable not only because it was like hey, it's these these like mysterious shambolic twee legends and they played a very legendary twee set that I adored, but then afterwards Stewart got in a screaming match argument with Isabel Campbell who was his on again off again paramour in the band at the time mm-hmm. on the street like on, on Com Ave where people are usually just reenacting scenes from from Fever Pitch, right? Like, just con- yeah. isn't that what they do? This was probably the first fight in Kenmore Square that didn't have to do with <laughs> Troy O'Leary. <laughs> no one no one involved on either side of Antoine the battle. Antoine Walker nicknamed, had nothing to do with this, yeah. N- neither of the combatants were nicknamed Sully. Like, they, we know that for a fact. So, um, no, it was, that was a nice night. I was going to mention it to him because it's a good conversation. We'll get to it at the end of the podcast, but it's a little bit like you know, down memory lane with a band that you grew up with. Of course, yeah, no, it's awesome. Uh, I think it's great that he's on the show. So Stuart Murdoch is on the second half of the show for the first half. Andy and I are going to talk a little bit about the the new trailers for Obi-Wan, Kenobi, and House of the Dragon uh, and just do a little bit of big franchise IP. (laughs) What if it was a different Obi-Wan? Obi-Wan Sullivan, Sully (laughs) from Kenmore Square. Like, I'm never going to give this up. Obi-Wan Sebastian would be dope. You know, Kenobi. You and McGregor Scottish, he could probably pull it off. Oh, he could swing it, for sure. But it's like they um, definitely didn't want people to think it was a different Obi-Wan. Green, while I have you, it's, it is it uh, is 2.09 p.m. Uh, in the West okay. Coast on Thursday. Are you going to Doctor Strange this afternoon? Yeah. Yes, I am. I, I, I secured the ticket. It, it is not an indie shambolic uh, twee fest from what I understand. It will not be like that Bell and Sebastian show 25 years ago. I got a chance to see it a couple of days ago. I talked to Sean about it on a big picture to be released imminently. And uh, I'm really excited to chat with you about it. I really want to hear... I think it's going to be really interesting to get your perspective, both as a person who's perhaps losing patience with mm. the entire MCU project, but also like knows everything that they're referencing in terms of comic book references to see what you think of this movie. I'm a big America Chavez fan. Are you a big Sam, Sam Raimi guy? No. Okay. I'm not. Do you think that's <laughs> going to affect my viewing experience? Second half, maybe. Yeah. Interesting. Second half of the movie is very Raimi. I'm just going to be honest with you and our listeners. Um, I'm really happy this movie is out right now. I, I was just feeling like I need a little need a little me time. And I love curling into the aisle seat of the last row of a Regal Plex or whatever to watch uh, let my troubles melt away in the MCU for two hours. I enjoy that. What do you want to start with? Do you want to start with Dragon or Obi-Wan? Obi-Wan. Okay. I actually um, think there's some overlap between these two topics. I, I agree with you because the I think there's some similarity between show and we're talking about these trailers that were released on uh th- during the week so i think obi-wan came out a couple of days ago and then house of the dragon came out today <laughs> it came out on star wars day may yes. may the 4th and may. by the way i just i just want to salute res- truly and respectfully salute the everyone has that guy on their facebook feed that maybe they went to middle school with like for a year and has ne- have never seen since but they're very prominent and they're very noisy and i really want to shout out a dude uh who Posted a photo, but you're not of, actually going to sh- say his name. No, 
Well, okay. I'll, let me finish the story first. Um, Princess Leia, and it said um, something like, real women join the resistance. May the fourth be with you. Keep abortion safe and legal. And I was like, you, you did it. You did it. The trifecta of internet for today. It really gets you. Gets you in the fields. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm glad that so, you've taken this, this mental health break from Twitter to spend time on Facebook. It's it's a it's a really bad hack. I I I you know I only go there for the medical advice. Sure. Yeah. So I feel like it's okay. It's okay. Anyway, right. Uh, I was so just that was released that May the fourth. Dragon came out today, Thursday. Obi Wan obviously is a nostalgia play, and there's no getting around that. I don't think they would do this and try to radically and reinvent the character, even though they're showing something that a period of time that has long been speculated about. Like, what was he like between uh, the end of the prequels and New Hope? And obviously, if you were like a canon person and reading novels or, or or whatever, maybe you had a sense. But for a lot of people, this is clearing up like a huge like sort of gap in their in their character knowledge. Yet, I do think that it was crucial that they did what they did, which is show. Well, show they they played a little bit of the the deep breathing of Darth Vader at the end of uh, at the end of this trailer, which is not unlike I mm-hmm. can't decide which. Either someone saying the word game in the House of the Dragon <laughs> trailer mm-hmm. or just like straight up just showing a dragon egg, you know, and for like like five seconds. Do you think there was an early cut of the Obi-Wan trailer that ended with the distinctive nostalgia tugging timbre of Hayden Christensen's speaking voice? That's and they were like, question. I love what you're doing. I love your direction, but I'm going to pitch an alt. And the Here's alt the is thing, make though, it Darth Vader. I think that actually... We're, we just don't know because we're we're fossils. Yeah, that actually is in and of itself like a nostalgic trigger for a whole generation of people that it's not for us. The voice, Hayden Christensen's voice. Well, look, I I I, I would get hype for Shattered Glass too. I, I'm not immune to the man's charms. I'm yeah. just saying. Oh yeah, I, I get what you're. I get your point. I, I think here's where I want to start with this trailer, which is of course an expertly cut trailer. It's already a little bit, you know, ahead of the game because, as you alluded to before, Ewan McGregor is the star of this in an iconic role that he has played before, and we love Ewan McGregor. Like, I'm I'm going to watch it if, for him mm-hmm. more than anything else, honestly. But what what I wanted to, to point out is the marketing, not the existence of the trailer. But I thought it was really interesting that it is has been rebranded as a six-part event. Mm-hmm. That feels different. It feels a little bit significant. And it feels like it is at once trying to do three things. One, of course, cut through the clutter. Um, Like everything else, this is being released before the Emmy cutoff of May 30th. So it's happening in a very, very busy and crowded time. And also post-Multiverse of Madness. So like summer movie season will have started as well. Mm -hmm. That's part two. As we've discussed multiple times in the podcast, Lucasfilm slash Star Wars movie strategy is in limbo. There was a time when a lot of the stuff that we're seeing on Disney Plus was meant for the big screen. Not in this current version, but there was a Josh Trank-affiliated Boba Fett project. I'm sure there were Obi-Wan screenplays either commissioned or greenlit or considered, right? Like, that that's where all the stuff started. So calling this an event is kind of a way to split the difference and say, you know, we're still in that space. You're used to this character or this story in a certain way, and we're gonna we're gonna deliver that scope, that scale, that level of engagement and 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 budget. Frankly, mm-hmm. the third thing that I wonder about is if it is the first time we're seeing a pivot from 
what their TV strategy has been and also pivot from what I think the conventional wisdom was that fans of both genre and TV in general wanted, which was, we're opening the tap, stand back. Right. There's just going to be a lot of this. I think that it is interesting that it's being presented as a, we're going to tell you the story. We're going to fill in this gap. This is like Rogue One. This is a Star Wars story. This is not part one of the Mandoverse. You know what I mean? And by the way, Chefs to Better Call Saul, the Michael Mandoverse, a story that runs from Orphan Blacks, Toronto, to Breaking Not Call Joe. Saul, for, better, for Breaking Bad's Albuquerque, into it, into the Mandoverse. But I think, I think you Not guys Joe, know get I mean. out of the oil tanker, my <laughs> friends! The Salamancas are coming! It's viscous, it's getting in your nose, Mando! Yep. So... I don't I think Gus has your best interest at heart! Did, did you feel like this was being presented as something a little bit different? Well, so that's a great question. I It made me think a little bit about, uh, and let me just mention, if you have not watched Mandalorian, but still want to like maintain some sort of relationship to Star Wars, I'm going to spoil some stuff in Mandalorian right now. I'm trying to be a little bit more sensitive about that. Uh, the Luke thing in Mandalorian, right? Like, yep. could have been the most momentous promoed get ready this is huge the mm-hmm. mandalorian season 2 featuring luke skywalker thing that star wars has ever done since maybe ever you know what i mean like in terms of the technological sort of leaps that they were making by regenerating like an old uh, like a young version of mark hamill and also just like showing him honestly in full samurai mode in a way that we hadn't seen him pretty much since Jedi. And, you know, it winds up being kind of a cameo at the end of the second season of a spinoff show, of a, of a sideshow. And I was kind of thinking, you know, to your point, is this the way that they're sort of presenting Obi-Wan like a corrective to that? It's like, maybe we should make a bigger deal out of this stuff. And I think the Marvel the Marvel movies and TV shows have had a similar sort of question facing them, which is like, you've got certain totemic, iconic characters. How do you sort of send them out into the world? How, you, how do you feature them? Maybe sometimes when you're not going to be spending an entire series or an entire movie on them, but you want to bring them back and you can keep them in circulation. And... I thought it was interesting that like in the first two trailers for Obi-Wan, Obi-Wan's not in them very much. Like they're yeah. still holding back a lot about what Obi-Wan does. I, I, if I had to guess, it would be because they want the impact of seeing Obi-Wan wielding a lightsaber when that eventually happens to be as, you know, visceral as possible, which I, I appreciate. But yeah, like I think that they're in a really weird zone right now where it's like, how do we eventize what was once an event unto itself? They have to like basically yeah. resell this idea because we've kind of become come accustomed to, look, if I'm going to tune in for this thing for 10 hours or seven hours or whatever, or if I'm going to you know watch this movie, I expect there to be some sort of like huge MDMA hit of Star Wars ecstasy at some point. It's really hard to overstate how special and rare trips to the galaxy far, far away, a long, long time ago, used to feel. It mm-hmm. used to be. Look, this is peak old man shit. Like, this is just, this is our bag. This is our thing. This is like us talking about Lonesome Dove, and audiences' opinions about this may vary. But that's the prism through which we see all the Star Wars stuff, which was for 
the most important formative years of our life, there were three movies. Mm -hmm. That was it. And then when we were graduating college, there were three more and they were bad. And still that was it, you know? Now we can get that endorphin hit of just, you know, and I always talk about this there, the sound design or the little blinking, bleeping lights or the vistas of Tatooine with the signature George Lucas wipes. Like, yeah, they gave us that. Mm -hmm. Favreau, older, a little older than us, but like clearly clued into the same, cued into the same type of relationship. He just, he just tapped the main vein, man, and gave it to us. So what is this? And I think that that's always up against a project like this on one side. On the other side, and we, and we talked about this a couple months ago when the first trailer dropped, the natural story for Obi-Wan as a series that fills in the gap is Ewan McGregor's Obi-Wan Kenobi protects Luke and Leia on Tatooine. Mm -hmm. Well, Favreau stole that one too, because we are not doing another lone wolf and this time cubs story. And as I joked, and I guess they took the note, I'm sure not from us, but presumably from other people within the company, we're good on Tatooine. We're good. We do not need to see more desert. Yeah, and that's um, why I think that they've so heavily featured like the Blade Runner set. Yeah, and, and so all that is to say like, the the shots that were chosen, the vibe that they uh, the vibe that they cultivated, is strong. It it does seem to look good, look exciting, but also it seems to and I and I think this is important. Anybody watching that trailer is just like, oh, he's being hunted. He's on mm -hmm. the run. Okay, great. I mean, already it's better than anything Ewan McGregor had to do in the prequels where he mostly just sort of sat on the ship and did Sudoku while other characters did stuff. Right. So this is this is already a plus. But it it is interesting, and I'm, I, you know, this is this podcast. This won't surprise anyone. But I'm going to keep paying particular attention to the way that it's marketed, presented, and the way uh, the publicity department attempts to get us and other people to talk about it. Like, is this just another TV offering, or is this a special thing? Yeah. Is this a is this a you know a, a a shining jewel that is separate from the larger Favreau and Filoni verse? So, I think one consistent theme of the way we've talked about Star Wars over the years is like kind of constantly asking why they aren't braver, why yes. they don't take more risks, why they don't tell different stories, go to different planets, uh, you know, maybe not tell a lone wolf and cub story, etc. And then I watched the House of the Dragon trailer, and I was like, this is exactly what I want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I literally want you guys to bring back the five families and have them argue over this fucking throne. <laughs> I'm so simple. And I was I was actually almost like strangely energized, not by how predictable it is, because obviously we don't know, but I even was reading something, I think it's in the Hollywood Reporter, where they were talking to Miguel Spochnik, who was brought on to do, I think, a, you know, he's the directing producer of the of the series, if I'm correct. And he was kind of like, we didn't really look to reinvent the wheel here. Like Game of Thrones is a really good show. A lot of it really, really, really worked. And a lot of like, we, we took a lot of lessons from what we did there. I think that's pretty cool. Like, I think like I'm like on the, on the grand scheme of things, like I don't really need a Cassavetes version of Game of Thrones or a like Western Game of Thrones or a whatever Game of Thrones, like Game of Thrones can just be what it is. Yeah. I think that we're seeing that, especially as, the need is as the pipeline just expands, there's always a need to make more and more of this. Like companies are getting better at pumping out consistent product and literally giving people what they want. You know, I, we talk about this every time it comes up. There was another game of Thrones 
spinoff yes. pilot shot that was aggressively different, intentionally so. And there's a reason why, you know, the only copy exists in a lockbox buried deep beneath HBO head Casey Bloys's ski chalet. Like, no one's ever going to see that show because it's not what people want to associate with a brand, especially as the next show up, especially from a property that is by no means distressed. But I wouldn't say it was left in the strongest position uh, with the core fan base who you always have to appease. Although, now I yeah. kind of wonder whether or not there is a little bit of a favor done by the end of Game of Thrones because you can go up. You know, like, there yeah, is, that's true. There is there's like room to grow, there is room to revive, there is room to re-engage people who may have felt disappointed by the end. Yeah, that's a good point, too. I Like the previous conversation about Obi-Wan, I'm watching this from a almost meta and business perspective. Mm-hmm. The cast of this show is ridiculous. It it's is awesome. stacked with some of our favorite European actors, you know, just across the board, like people who are just always good. Patty Considine, uh, Matt Smith, Olivia Cook, who who had a cup of coffee on the set of Slow Horses yeah. and maybe, maybe we'll come back. Emma Darcy uh, looks like so striking and like, it's like, that's yeah. like immediately someone you're like gravitating towards in the Reese trailer. Fons, yeah. Um, with his real face, not the way he was in Spider-Man No Way Home. Um, <laughs> Do you I, think he's like sure he was in Spider-Man No Way Home? I think it was news to him, honestly. Yeah. I think he probably thought he was doing like voiceover for a, like, a, like a video game or something. And then in a way he was. So it's stacked and Sapochnik is directing. So that's, that's going to be good. I, I have to confess that when I watched it, I was like, mm-hmm. Yep. You know, it is also a show that is, I, I've seen this and I like it. So that's yeah. that's good. That's better than a lot of things. It's a smart business play for an overcrowded marketplace. It's worth noting that this series, unlike the original Game of Thrones, is coming in hot. I mean, it's starting at Spinal Tap's 11, right? Like, it's starting with a $20 million per episode budget. It's starting with a world full of dragons. So I watch this trailer and I'm like, this is a very watchable B. And I haven't really seen a frame of it. Mm -hmm. which is a good place for a TV show to be in this marketplace. I have to confess that after watching it, though, I didn't feel any pangs like, oh, I miss Westeros. Now, we may be unique in that you and I spent a lot of time in the muck of Flea Bottom with the show. We sure. watched every episode multiple times and filmed TV shows about it and really, really did our time. And to be fair, weirdly, did all that and yet still probably are like, and so the Baratheons... They did one oh, again. Totally. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it, totally. it's not we, like I heard those names and I was like, I got it. I know what Viserys is doing. I know it. Like, yeah, I, I know what all these people are. Like, I have to go back and refresh my memory about that stuff. This was the biggest show on planet Earth for quite a long time. And yet, in some ways, not much has changed in that I would argue a majority, a probably a strong majority of people who would describe themselves as Game of Thrones superfans of the series don't get that jolt that our friends Mallory Rubin or Jason Concepcion probably get when they're like, that's Viserys. Yeah, right. That's his dragon. And that's funny that we're, you know, 10, 11 years on, we're back to that place again. Can I ask you, though, um, are there any universes left that you still get a pang of excitement at the thought of returning to? And, and, and obviously, this is a recurring conversation with us in different forms, because this year we are going back to canonical Star Wars. Mm-hmm. We're going back to um, Lord, Lord of the Rings. Rings. Yeah. We're going back to Westeros. And we've never really left Earth 616 in the MCU. Right. Although apparently 
there's a whole multiverse. I don't know if you've heard about this. <laughs> so do any of those just as a fan, and people know this isn't this isn't a ringer first show. We don't come at stuff that way, which is a very beloved and awesome way to approach stuff, but that's generally not our entry point. So do you still get that from any of these properties? From and these which, properties? Yeah, or do any of them get you there? I saw an Instagram photo of Timothy Oliphant and Walton Goggins together the other day. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, so you're still alive. And, and Goggins has moved into really aggressive hat guy, like huge yeah. flat-brimmed hat. Um, like Thornton? Thorntonverse? Yeah, I think they were hanging out at Jazz Fest too, which like to me is just, it's what you want. Is, is Timothy Oliphant and Walton Goggins hanging out at Jazz, Jazz Fest? I say that to say like I'm excited for Justified coming back, but it's also... I think that this question has got a different answer now than it would have two years ago. Uh, After the TV stuff, I think it's changed. I think it's changed. I think it's just like, it's the difference between uh, going somewhere for work and going somewhere for vacation. Um, Mm. And I think that I I just feel a little bit more familiar with, inundated by, and um, maybe it's the flattening of everything and the fact that like so much stuff we're getting off of our Apple TV boxes or whatever you're your sort of streaming device of choice is or you're watching it on your laptop and and you're kind of like, oh, it's a Wednesday at 9 a.m. Like, I guess I could watch the Moon Knight finale. You know, like, there is a kind of, like, barrage of it so that it doesn't give me, I think, the thing that everybody secretly holds on to, which is I hear that music or I see that dragon or I see Tony Stark and the 12-year-old in me is still there, right? yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I, I'll punt on this. I'd like to, I'll answer it Monday because I actually have such a good feeling still from the Spider-Man movie. I just enjoyed that experience. Mm-hmm. I had a great time that I'm holding out hope that that, that seeing a, a big old MCU extravaganza will still make me feel like a kid again or at least a 36-year-old or whoever old I was when this thing started. <laughs> Fresh-faced, pushy-tailed. This is the 28th movie. Uh, 28th movie? Yeah. God, do you remember, remember those, those those early days of like, 2014, we're like, yeah, everyone, there's going to be a phase. Dark <laughs> phase World three? came out and we're like, oh, well, they tried. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Those well, let's, the times. let's talk about uh, a show that is kind of nostalgic in a different way, which is, yeah. which is Atlanta. So you and I, we, we, I don't like to, to do this, but we were chatting a little bit yesterday uh, off the pod about Atlanta and we were talking a little bit about it feeling a little bit this season like this is a show from a different time, mm. you know, that, that mm-hmm. even, and I think that this has been kind of a recurring theme is we've had this uh, huge glut of shows released right now where it's like, are these COVID delayed? Are they all for the Emmy window? What have you? And uh, Atlanta, which has been a staple of a uh, show for us that we've talked about over the last five years, revolutionized television in a lot of ways, um, broke minted stars in a way that TV is unique in its ability to do. I think, created an entire like meme industrial complex content machine around itself because people were so infatuated with what they were seeing and also delighted by the weekly experience of tuning in to Atlanta, not knowing what they were going to get, being blown Mm -hmm. away about it and wanting to talk about it immediately. And because everything has changed so much over the last few years from the last time we saw Atlanta to now, I think that the world in which the 2022 version of Atlanta has been released is just a lot different in a lot of different ways. The world is different than the way the the world it was when it was written and shot. And I think 
the conception of the season as you know knowing that they're shooting the three and four together i think gives me makes me think that what used to be something that felt like uh an important episodic experience to have over eight ten weeks or whatever that would kind of really provoke radical like rethinking of tv or society or whatever has now become something that i almost feel like i need to see in totality and take a step back and think about what was being done and said with the season so this is not i'm not trying to be like this is a long way of me saying i don't like this season as much as season two and one i don't but that's also like i don't know that the sentence is finished yet you know like when you watch these episodes and you kind of start to see a little bit of the threads connecting mm-hmm. what seemed completely disjointed unconnected episodes it changes how i feel about it it's just that it isn't like i'm like oh this is a really like profound statement you guys are making it's just not the same you're not speaking the same accent that you were or the same like mm-hmm. language you were when it was season 2 and it felt a little bit more sustained. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I don't think it's hedging at all to be extremely careful in talking about the show. I want to be also because I have I I think we both have a lot of complicated, sometimes conflicting opinions about the show. That sort of opinions that aren't easily um, aren't easily articulated in a glib podcast or in that in this format. I feel two things at once here. I feel extraordinarily lucky to have Atlanta on television. I think that even at its worst, which I think to be fair has been this season. Very high bar, not very far, or very high floor, but yeah. I do think this has been uh, a challenging season in a lot of ways. But even when it's not firing on all cylinders, it is useful to take a pause and just remember how breathtaking it is to have a show this radical, not just in terms of um, form, but in terms of its willingness to engage in conversations about blackness and profoundly whiteness this season, I mean, this is this show is taking more risks in commenting on the nature of whiteness since, I don't know, like the third season of Friends. I think that's probably the only other show that comes close to it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and when I say having a conversation, again, even that's not the right box to put this in because I think shows that even with good intentions that are quote unquote about race often like put up the, um, you know, build the box and then parade the players in front of it in a way that everything is relatively neutral. So it can be more easily explained this show. It's, I mean, it's in some ways there are aspects of it that we, you and I can't talk about because this show is a profoundly black show written by black people with using a vernacular and cultural references and emotional resonance that you and I don't have access to, honestly, sometimes until I watch this show. So I'm really grateful for that and for that experience to be affected by it and to be challenged by it constantly. All of that can be true. While I think it's also fair to say great swaths of the season have kind of been a drag. And I think they've been a drag on two levels. The biggest one for me, and I think I'm not alone in this, and I also want to caveat it and say, I think that you're right. Um, be very curious, not only to see where this season ends, but where the, you know, the, the concurrently filmed fourth season ends up um, because they're linked. Whether they were intentionally linked or not, they're linked in terms of production and how we're going to consider them. Because in 2022, 
for me, one of the biggest and most exciting challenges to see them undertake would have been to make a show about the four main characters. TV has changed so much since the formal, the radical formalism of season two that a series of connected vignettes or even, you know, thematically connected, if not narratively connected vignettes, is a genre unto itself. I mean, that mm-hmm. was the, the BJ Novak show was that, also yeah. on FX, right? Making TV, making traditional TV is real hard. And, you know, you could, you could use the facile analogy of like, you know, Salvador Dali could do a still life and then he painted dripping clocks and Donald Glover and Hero Moray and all these people have proven that they can do just a great 30 minutes of character-based comedy drama. Like, they can do that. But I feel a little cheated only because, as you said, newly minted stars, the four leads of this show, this is pound for pound. Like, that's the best cast on TV. I love those four people. I think Brian Tyree Henry is the best screen actor working. I think Lakeith Stanfield is like 1A. I would watch them do anything. And the show lets them do anything. Donald Glover himself is great. So Z Beats is awesome. And I feel, at first of all, I miss them, you know? I, yeah, I, miss I mean, like, if you need an example, like Stanfield in what White Fashion yeah. two episodes ago is amazing. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, like, just watch that. That's like a, it's so understated and it's so like stuff that's not being said. It's it's an incredible performance. Yeah, and, and Brian Tyree Henry in, Brian Tyree Henry's face in Cancer Scare, or I think that's what it's called, A Cancer Attack, um, when the weird nephew is playing guitar to him, is doing more in that silent performance than most actors do in a season of television when they have a lot of lines. So I love that, and I, and I miss it. The second thing, which is naughtier and harder to talk about, is that some of the vignette episodes have felt a little didactic and confusing and so when we're just so we people know when we're talking about the vignette episodes, we're referring to three slaps, which was the opening mm-hmm. episode, the reparations episode with Justin Bartha and Trinity to the bone, which was the most recent episode. We're doing this on Thursday. The new episode will go up tonight, I think. Yeah, exactly. I think that the, the reparations episode was probably the most successful of those three. When I say confusing, I guess I want to form it as a question because I'm still unsure. There are moments in these episodes. There's a moment in Trinity to the bone when I am locked in with what the show is saying, and it, and it, it has found a really next level POV of race, at the intersection of race and class and parenting and responsibility and guilt and, uh, um, you know, intentional ignorance or blindness that mm-hmm. it is being alive, especially being alive in a city like New York today. And then it, and then it zags kind of back into something more facile or easy. And the thing that I was wondering, and I've heard other people say this on Ringer Podcasts and elsewhere, is it a question of losing perspective on who are these episodes for? Are they satirizing? Are they holding up a mirror to, to, to society? Are they intended to discomfort the white people, the black people, everyone, all of us to be sort of having conversations like this? If so, mission accomplished. It's a tough question to ask, but when this type of social satire slash horror, which is kind of veering into the, that mm-hmm. world, that space, works, like what Jordan Peele did with Get Out, for example, which I think has been a comp to a lot of the episodes this season, you don't have that conversation in terms of like, who is this for? You're like, this is a new definition of horror. These episodes sometimes don't feel, um, have not felt consistent enough to me 
which seems like such a petty. I'm no, hearing myself. So I, I would almost, I would reverse it, and I would say another question. It's not really who's it for. That I'm wondering. It's mm. what does this have to do with Atlanta? And I understand okay. that. I think that's where the viewing the season in its totality part might come in handy. I'm curious, not so much about like what this, you know, what some of these vignette episodes or these anthology episodes kind of say about race, although I am curious about that. I'm curious about what they have to do with Ern and Van mm. and Al and Darius. You know what I mean? Like, I'm curious whether or not, you know, I've seen speculation that the first episode opens with or it ends with mm-hmm. Ern waking up that there's like a dreamlike quality to a lot of this season and that some of this, obviously, like Don Glover has referenced The Sopranos several times, like whether or not there will be, some of this is going to be written off to being a dream that Ern is having somewhere. Like, I don't I don't know yeah. whether or not like that's even a useful element to bring into the conversation. But to me, it's like, the question isn't so much like, what am I supposed to take from Trinity to the Bone or, or any of the other sm- like standalone episodes? Because there have been standalone episodes before in Atlanta. It's just that they felt connected to Atlanta. You know? Yeah, I think it's a good point. I mean, no disrespect to some of the people in the standalone episodes, but the acting isn't of a caliber as the main cast. And I think that one of the most powerful things about the main well, cast episodes Well, they're almost like purposely Europe, anonymous. Yes, I think that's a, that's a good point as well. I think that the, the success of the character-based episodes in Europe have been, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the first two, you know, it's, it reminds us that Atlanta is more than a physical place and that the larger world that these black characters have to move through is constantly beset by the same questions of race and 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 place and merit and judgment that you know that that their lives were beset by before even though now they are in a very different place successfully or monetarily you know and I think that's been really fascinating mm-hmm. the idea of of whiteness as a concept not just um a skin tone, you know, or blackness in the same in the same way. I think that's been really successful. And the fashion episode, the white fashion episode, packed so much into those thirty minutes, you know. And the 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 idea of like aspects of social justice as a grift, you know, as that episode suggested, yeah, mixed with Van maybe possibly shoplifting, and then Ern getting a free hotel room, and then is it? deserved in the same way that the the artist grifting on his friend in the 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 old man of the tree episode was doing you know where he's like look we all know this but i deserve that money and the reparations thing the show isn't easy to pin down and but to your point i really like it when our characters are very much in that world and negotiating them and mm-hmm. having it play off of them as it happened to alfred in that episode i think i do want to come back to your point which i hadn't considered and i wish that i had that we're not done you know, it, you can't make that comment yet because one of the things that that we talk about and that I often say that I champion in TV is that because there's another one next week, you can throw more stuff out there. Yeah. You know, and when you make a self-contained episode, I think the challenge is not to think of it as a movie or as a complete statement with punctuation at the end because those three episodes you're talking about, to me, were not to the standard of the best of Atlanta if considered as one thing. But if you consider an entire season, which we will, we will be able to do soon, a, you know, a wash in these issues, it might feel different. But but we, we should circle back to that first thing you said, too, which was a little bit out of time. I, I would love some clarification, but I was looking at the timeline of this season. This season was ordered in 2018 and presumably or reportedly written by 2019. And of course, scripts are never done. Sure. Honestly, they're never done 
until they air on television in some ways. But some of the things feel not, as you were saying, like some of the references or some of the, like, you know, I, I keep harping on like the kombucha stuff in the season premiere. I was like, that feels easy. Yeah, like it's, but then there's like white fashion, which feels like it could only be made in late 20 post, or 21. Post, post you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So it's it's yeah, tough. It, I mean, like, I, I, I think that ultimately the thing that's sort of getting at me is probably also that um, this is an Atlanta season that's just making me think think more than it's making me feel and the yeah. first two seasons were great at doing both um there was like a kind of feeling when you're watching i i don't know i mean anything from the the sort of amy simons directed episode where van and Ern are at the german festival to teddy perkins to take your pick of your favorite atlanta episodes mm-hmm. where not only are you intellectually very stimulated by like with the ideas that are being thrown around and also like aware of I'm seeing something really special. And that's like one of the coolest feelings and, is when you're watching TV and you're like, Oh shit, this is different. And, but also emotionally are completely invested and are on the edge of your seat as a viewer. I mean, that is the fucking sweet spot you want to hit. And Atlanta lived there for two seasons. So it's just different to be in this season. And honestly, it feels a lot of the stuff that's in Europe appropriately feels jet lagged. It just feels like mm. I'm missing like a little bit part of my brain while I'm watching it. And it feels a little bit quiet and it feels a little bit slow and it feels a little bit at a remove. And I am, I just find myself so drawn every time Van and uh, Ern are on screen together. I'm like, yeah. Oh God, you I want this up. show. Yeah. Right. And it's like, maybe I'm just, I'm a simpleton. You know what I mean? And, and like, and maybe, that's why I'm like, I think that it's like, I can only really truly like mark, evaluate the show at the end of the season. Yeah, I think I, I would follow up just to say that like the second sweet spot for a program to be in is one that can spark a respectful, challenged conversation like this, right? Like we want to be talking about the show and we're thinking about it and it's affecting us. And that is harder to do than it seems. That's not many shows can even get to that point. But yeah, I... I, I do agree with you. I, I am yearning for those moments of deep character journey connections because one of the th- things that's always been admirable about the show is that it's just kind of yada yada stuff that other shows would you know, either waste or spend time, depending how you feel about it, on. This season picks up. Alfred's successful. Paperboy's super famous. Yeah. Financially, they're not in any kind of peril anymore. That's gone. So, But I yearn for those moments of connection where I think about the Alfred that was on camera in BAN in the first season. And the Alfred that is confronted with the white fashion stuff in this season and what he wants to do with it and how the media once again kind of manipulates him and lets him down. But the differences in Brian Tyree Henry's performance in terms of his own character's confidence and speaking how he feels and playing the game. Similarly, one of the more interesting moments this season for me was in the the cancer attack episode when Alfred is like, you know, ask Ern how he's doing. And Ern is busy doing clearly working out all the stuff that Donald Glover jotted in his notebook while touring Europe as Childish Gambino. Like a lot of like, this is my life now stuff. But this idea of this character who was kind of a mess, right? For the first two seasons, like scrounging for money and child support. And now now he's Michael Clayton. Yeah. (laughs) Now he's Michael Clayton. Exactly. And Van is like, you worry about everyone. That's what you do. And I honestly, like how many, how how much dialogue has Donald Glover had on his show this season? Yeah. Very little. Five pages. I don't know. Yeah. It is a gift to have a show that can be watched five different different ways 
by five different people simultaneously. Like you can watch it for the characters or the jokes or the relationships or the social insight or the surprises or just the, the scares almost, the horror of the season. But I guess this is a reflection of our current desire to bring it all together, not necessarily in a satisfying bow, but to feel that same high that we felt for the first two seasons, which also might not be possible. It's hard to do something as close to perfect as that. Yeah. Well, we can wrap it up there. Um, we'll get into Andy's interview with Bell and Sebastian Stuart Murdoch. Uh, thanks for yes, listening to the watch today. We're running it today because the new Bell and Sebastian album, A Bit of Previous, is out tomorrow, May 6th, worldwide on all your streaming platforms and in record stores from Matador Records. It was awesome to talk to Stuart Murdoch live from Scotland. I can't wait to hear the interview. We were produced, as always, by Kaya McMullen, and we'll be back Monday night uh, doing uh, our usual Better Call Saul. We'll also have some other stuff. Maybe we'll check in we'll on We Own City, talk. and we got to do some strange talk. So probably a big episode on Monday, so can't wait to do that. Thanks, to everybody, for listening. Have a great weekend. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Three great words. Free fries Friday. Especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with $1 minimum purchase. Bell one time on Fridays at participating McDonald's through 1231.24. Excludes tax must opt into rewards. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm just so honored and thrilled to be joined in the podcast by someone whose music has meant so very much to me for a very long time. Um, the singer, songwriter, I, I think it's okay to say band leader of Bell and Sebastian, Stuart Murdoch. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Andy. It's a, it's a great pleasure to be here. I, I'm always excited for a chance to talk to you, um, but particularly because two years ago, uh, when the pandemic hit the world, one song of yours in particular was just in my head constantly, which was, I want the world to stop. <laughs> because <laughs> I, I have, that song is from 2010 from the great Write About Love album and um, terrific song that is often in my head. And then it actually, the world did stop. And I was wondering if you also thought of that song in that moment and uh, if it perhaps changed your perspective on your desire <laughs> for it to cease functioning. Um I didn't, I didn't really, it never occurred to me to think about it, but a few people... <laughs> Online, where we're 
partially trying to blame Bell and Sebastian for what had happened, <laughs> connecting, <laughs> it, connecting it to that song. Um, and uh, so I don't know whether people were getting comfort from the song Solace or, or were just, just kind of amused that it had sort of happened. I think you have to go pretty deep into the uh, the dark parts of Reddit to find the conspiracy theories that blame Bell and Sebastian <laughs> for global catastrophe. That is, that's pretty broken brain, I think. Uh, we were quite. I, I mean, when the when the whole thing kicked off, it's a, it's amazing how easily our our band shut down. It was uh, there was really no fuss. <laughs> <laughs> people were people didn't mind the break. I mean, I guess that that was sort of a lead up to that question, which is where were you guys in your uh, you know, the band career at that moment? Were you recording? Were you about to do something? Were you about to tour and then just pull the plug or were you in the, still in the midst of the sort of a layover period? No, we were definitely. I mean, we've been working solid for, you know, the last 7 8 years which we haven't really stopped and so we're always doing something. And we were getting ready to record a record. In fact, we were getting ready to go out to California right. and um, we were just about to go. And then it appeared that we we should definitely not go, uh, which was a, a good choice. And and so, yeah, we just we just kind of stopped, stopped dead. And it, it was lucky because, uh, I mean, it's I'm not saying it's lucky, but I think we were slightly more fortunate than, than people younger than us because... Uh, most of us have families, and you know we know how to we know how to disappear into our family groups to an extent and be a little bit more self sufficient but I know a lot of younger people really found their momentum was was halted and found it more difficult to adjust yeah, I really wondered about that specifically that perspective because I think that for young people, especially young people in touring bands, you know living literally moment to moment um and feeling like every opportunity is the one and the only one, and what can you do? I mean this was so catastrophic and and unsettling I think so I bet it stymied uh, a, a lot of artistic intentions people had to fall back on themselves it's actually on a practical basis it was harder for people who were whose jobs were in touring, you right. know, all, all the time, you know, our crew particularly, because once they, once our crew uh, and, and crews in general, if they finish with us, we go into the studio, those guys keep working, they go to on to the next tour. Yeah. So they're, they're full timers. So yeah, they, they had a, a shock and a lot of the industry hasn't recovered, you know, especially we, we had the double blow Brexit and, and COVID, which is, uh, you know, so so we're, we're we're all still trying to get back on our feet. I, I know that these are very different circumstances and separated by a large number of years and different eras in your life. But I, I I was thinking about an aspect of your experience that is part of sort of the band lore, which is before the band came together, when your life sort of stopped as well, when you were suffering from chronic fatigue syndrome, and you know, at least legendarily, a lot of the early Bell and Sebastian songs um, were developed during that period. Did you? Was there any element of that experience of remove, being removed from the world that came back to you in any way during this time or that you were able to fall back on as a helpful experience? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think probably it, it helped me to, to cope. It didn't really seem like a, a big change to me. And, so, and in fact, I think I got out ahead of it and I thought mm. this is going to be a big deal to a lot of people. This is a big deal. Of course it is. Uh, you know, some people are going to struggle with this, and that's that's why I thought to do the that I would start the online meditation 
class. I, I thought that I could maybe uh, share a bit of the the wisdom that I've got over the years, especially during that that period. Because yeah, that was a that was a difficult time. But I think in life you find you you come out of difficult times. You come out with determination, uh, but of wisdom. It, it, the meditation I was going to ask about as well um, it was so helpful to so many people, both what you were doing and also as people who found their way to a practice during these 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 challenging years. Um, has meditation been a part of your life for a long time? And, and and even if it hasn't, I wondered if that previous time that we're speaking of when you were ill helped you with these kind of foundational ideas of of presence and patience um, that a lot of us struggle with and that a lot of us are forced to kind of confront during this time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was... For me, it was sink or swim back then. I had yeah. I, I was forced to accept what was happening to me, um, and it took. I struggled for a couple of years, and in the and in those couple of years, I just kept getting worse and worse. And it actually wasn't until I completely sort of gave in and accepted what was happening physically to me that mentally things started uh, getting better. And that was my sort of that was my low point, but it was also the point where I you know, that the, the, the things started to pick up and it was a, it was a long road ahead. But, and then during that time, that was the time when I, I started going along uh, to a Buddhist center in Glasgow and doing a little bit of meditation. Funnily enough, uh, I, I was rooming with somebody who had a, who had a similar condition to me, my friend, Michael. Uh, and, um, you know, we were staying together like two, like two old folks supporting each other. And uh, but he was even more into the meditation. He was kind of leading me in that. He was quite dedicated. Uh, but then I so I kept going with it on and off. And then, but really, seven or eight years ago, I was struggling again. This time more, yeah, you know, with physical, mental health, and mm-hmm. went back to the Buddhist center almost with a vengeance, and uh, you know, really rolled up my sleeves, realizing that I needed to try and find a bit of peace. And, and that, that's, so in the last seven or eight years, that that's when I've been, uh, focused on it. Are the Buddhists there? Okay. With the word vengeance. <laughs> oh yeah. I think that's it. Do you know what? I, that, when the, as soon as that was out of my mouth, I realized that <laughs> you know, there was a turn of phrase that probably doesn't, uh, it's better to be, you know, I think in, in the UK, when you say you go at something with a vengeance, it means that you, yeah. you you're just, uh, you're enthusiastic. It doesn't mean that. You're, oh no, here, here too. I just wondered if oh, you had yeah. a particular sect of Buddhism that uh, yeah. <laughs> that was a little more aggressive. Oh yeah. They don't, they're, they're obviously they're Buddhists. <laughs> they're completely peaceful uh, apart from, they have no patience with uh, human delusions. Uh, I know that's getting a little bit Buddhist, but that's why sometimes you see uh, Buddhists that have swords and flames coming out of their mouth. And that, that's to <laughs> right. it. That's to it. Yeah. In, in pictures and statues. And I was thinking, what's that's, that doesn't seem very peaceful. And that's, they're attacking uh, the ignorance and delusions in, in a human mind. Uh, and they, they have no patience for that. I admire that. I, um, a moment ago at the start of our conversation, when we were talking about how younger bands may have struggled with the pandemic and the sort of like just, you know, the hard stop on their, their lives. It, it suggested to me a kind of like young formative and quite natural anxiety that I think comes to anyone at that age in their twenties, but particularly people who are trying to strike out and make an artistic statement and make themselves felt and known in the world. That being a little vague, but that feeling was so absent from the early Bell and Sebastian records in a way that was so striking that when I fell in love with your music, like in 
97, I think was when I first heard you guys. Um, it did feel like finally, like tuning in a radio into something fully formed, like a frequency that I'd just been waiting to hear that had been waiting for me. And I, I wonder how much of that, and again, your experience may have been quite different making it, but there was such a, what struck me as confidence into the music you were making, the songs you were writing, the way you were going to produce them, the way you were going to sing them. Do you consider that to be directly connected to the moment of surrender that you were referring to, the sort of giving up on that kind of anxious grind of a young person's <laughs> ambition? Yeah, no, I, I guess if you want to sum up the sound of early Bill and Sebastian, it was the sound of somebody who's fallen off the back of a truck and <laughs> finds himself in a... Maybe, maybe a bus, maybe a bus. Fallen off the back of a bus and and find themselves in a, a lay-by somewhere. But uh, so if if my lowest point when everything stopped was around 1990, it was 1995, end of 1995, by the time the band started to coalesce. So that was the, a long time to... Um, those were long years in, in which to to form your thoughts. And I was, you know, by the end of that, I was getting pretty impatient uh, to get on. I had plenty of time. I had planned... You know, I, I planned fictional bands, fictional artwork, fictional record sleeves. I, I, I made these records 10 times over. Not, not, funnily enough, not with the songs that we eventually recorded, but with earlier songs. And, uh, and then when it actually happened, it was much more, it's much stranger uh, when the band came together than, than you could ever imagine. It, it became, of course, there was, there was real people involved. And I, I, a lot of them, yeah. And uh, so, so it was beyond anything that I could imagine. And very quickly, then it took on a separate life of its own that was beyond my imagination. And then I really had to hold on. I mean, I really, <laughs> I didn't hold on by my fingertips because uh, it was a, it was a, a, a pretty wild ride. This question might be inc incredibly trite, but looking back on it, was it fun? Were you were you able to be present in those first like five years, like the you know the the, the first three records through Fold Your Hands, that first era iteration of the band? Like, do, do you think that you were enjoying it, or were you just yeah there racing was, along there, to keep there, up? There was great ups, there was great ups and downs. I think there was a there was an initial period of just joy for me. There was just joy uh, because. Things are really coming together. And I think it, it did actually energize me. It sort of, it helped me. It gave me a jolt uh, sort of physically and mentally that I had to keep up, try and keep up. And uh, so for something that you have imagined for so long to actually be happening. And, and if you think about it, like by the, at the end of 95, I was still in a, a government course for the sick or unemployed, you know, just passing the, the time it was a you know it was a music course but a few months later we suddenly we were i was in a music studio like a proper music studio with this new bunch of people making a, a proper record and then just a few months after that like most of the major record labels in the uk were, were had a representative come up to glasgow and they were all trying to sign us so i mean that was a that was quite an extreme year, uh, but I, but I was kind of ready for it. I, I that was it, it was definitely fun. I mean, there was such an incredible um, mythology, you know, from that period. And I remember, you know, the friend 
who worked the college radio station with me, who had the tape of Tiger Milk that I wore out. And then when it finally came out again on CD, I thought it was all wrong because of course the tape was at the wrong speed. And so I thought, <laughs> that, it, I thought that you had re-recorded it incorrectly. Um, but not just that. I mean, I, I, I'm old enough to remember, like, was the first promotional photo, like two, two of your friends dressed as nurses or something? Like there were no <laughs> photos of you. You were total... Yeah, the, the 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 control you guys had over what came out and what was said about it was just masterful. Well, um, well, it's nice of you to say that, and it's it's fine in hindsight, but I right. I, I I gotta tell you, there was no plan. There was there was right. there was definitely there was no plan to be, you know, this was before the internet, so it was easy to be to hide. It was easy to be anonymous. We were just, I was just interested in something that was. It was more unusual than just being in a band and doing. I, I had actually been in the. I started in the music business in the mid eighties when I, uh, you know, working in a record shop and and I would promote bands and I would be, you know, DJing and and <laughs> I, I was also a roadie. So when I was a roadie, I saw I saw so many bands. I was I'd be sitting on the stage doing security for all these bands, support bands, the head headline bands, and and I. I just had a feeling for where people were going right and people were going wrong. I could tell when right. when a record company were throwing away their money and on these guys, you know, come on, this isn't going to work. They they just don't have it. And then then some you you would be surprised that some band would be supporting another band and they would have no money. They would turn up with no equipment and they just have something something beautiful and, and that was my thing. And uh, so I, I had a good tutoring and plenty of time to think about what I wanted to. Uh, what I wanted to do in the way I wanted to present the band, but there, there was no real, there was no real plan to be super, super sly about it. Just right. wanted wanted to make, wanted to be a quality about everything that we did. Uh, you know, the, the the sleeves, the music, the the photographs, the videos. It's so interesting to hear you say that about being a roadie and observing, because you know, I, I I definitely didn't come prepared to make a to compare you to Noel Gallagher. But Noel Gallagher has a similar story, right? That he was roadieing for, I forget which band, and he saw what they were doing right, what they were doing wrong, what people responded to. And he's like, well, I can do that. And then certainly did that. Or, or when I've talked to Alex from Friends Ferdinand, you know, similarly, like working the door and being the guy in the room for the first wave of Glasgow bands and being like, yes, no, yes. I mean, there's a certain quality, right, to observing it. I think Alex is the best example you could possibly make because Alex and my history, I, I probably said that graphically, uh, grammarly wrong. Our history is intertwined and goes right. all the way all the way back to the early nineties. Um, just just when I had started, picked up a guitar and started to write music, and he was the hip guy in town. You know, he he was the guy. Now this is after I'd become sick and I wasn't able to run clubs or I didn't have any energy anymore. So Alex, he was the guy, you know, with these three piece suits. I remember my girlfriend just at the time, just her tongue hanging out, you know, when Alex, when <laughs> Alex went past and, uh, I, you know, I, I couldn't, I couldn't compete with that. And he, he ran all these clubs and he was, but yeah. he was gracious with it. And he was, he actually gave me pretty much my first proper show. Cause I, I knew him and I said, Alex, you know, I got this thing going with a, 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 I can play some tunes. I'll bring a flautist along. And he said, you can play anytime, come play anytime, which was encouraging because most of Glasgow, you know, the music scene thought I was a 
douchebag, you know, like a, a loser. I could I couldn't get anybody to play with me. I couldn't I couldn't pay anybody to play with me because you know I was just, I was pretty hesitant and I was just learning how to play. I was severely uncool at the time. <laughs> was this the thirteenth note? Is that the name of the club yeah, that he was? That was it. The thirteenth note downstairs at the the thirteenth note. He ran the ninety nine P club and the Kazoo club. And he said, no, anytime you want to play, just come down and put you on the bill. I did wonder if some of the other thinking behind the kind of, you know, the the mystery, even if it wasn't entirely intentional, but there's certainly like the the aesthetic, like having a consistent aesthetic and design um, that went through not just the music, but the the packaging and et cetera, et cetera, did come from the bands that you loved. I mean, I think that, you know, you're on the record as being a huge fan of, of Felt, who's a, a, a favorite of mine as well. And there's so much mystery to Lawrence and the project and, you know, the way that it was curated and controlled. And I, the question, I guess, isn't so much about your embrace of that similar kind of mysterious aesthetic in the first five years. It's the fact that after those first five years, Bell and Sebastian has charted a completely different course. Like Felt didn't have that second act and the Smiths didn't have that second act. And um, very, I've always been really curious and really admiring of that pivot, you know, when you came out into the spotlight in a different way and what that felt like and whether that was just uncharted territory. That's interesting. I don't think, I don't think anybody's ever put that to me in such clear uh, terms and you're, you're absolutely right. That was, a, it was a second act. It, it really was because if, if the band had stopped then with Isabel leaving and Stuart leaving and, um, yep. and, and actually, you know, me, I, I got ill again and had to spend a whole year, um, back in that land, it could have stopped then. And, and, and then those five years would have been kind of perfect. You know, there's a, there's, there's a sort of, I mean, the, the origin story of Bell and Sebastian in the, the early days are almost, it's kind of better than the mythology. The things that actually happened are as good as you could make up. Um, it was just funny and quirky and lovely and, um, you know, we just had a good old time and uh, um, making all those records. But what happened was that when it did, it did crumble, it did end. It, and then it, that could have been it. And, um, I think to his credit, our first manager, Neil Robertson was like, okay, so what are you going to do? Are we going to, are we going to, are we going to move on and we didn't do this or are we just, are we just going to forget it? And we, I, I think we probably had a meeting that the, 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 the people that were left in the band had a meeting for the first time as equals looking at each other in the eye thinking, do, do we want to carry on? And, and so we got Bob into the band who's genius move to play bass. Cause Bob's very, he's just like, he was just like a ray of light. He was just super optimistic about everything. And we hadn't had that for a while. <laughs> so, um, you know, we, and he was, everything just seemed easy to him. And, you know, we thought, well, maybe it can be okay. And so th that's when we, we got a proper crew together. We decided to learn how to play live properly and, and we didn't look back. Did anything change in addition to that, like about your personal vision of what it meant to have an artistic life? Because I think that a lot of us who fall in love with music at a young age, or maybe who fall in love with any kind of art form, probably the first thing you fall in love with is the kind of, you know, grand burnout, not fade away, like burn brightly, tragic, you know, the first five years. Like, as you said, like, there's a version of Bell and Sebastian that is only those first five years and one of the most beloved cult acts that, you know, is whispered about forever. but 
is done. Did anything change in your mind about what it would might mean to have an artistic life beyond that first phase? Like, because of, you know, I was referring to people that you've talked about as your heroes who didn't get to do that. Yeah, well, certainly the first the first five years, we were always, uh, it was always spinning plates, you know, we were always walking a fine line. So nothing ever felt settled. It was chaotic. Um, but then we, when we started going to s- for phase two, after a year or so, that was the first time I thought this, this could be my job, actually. You know, this, mm-hmm. um, this could be my career. And I think also at that point I started to, and the band started communicating with, with their, with the fans, with the press, with the radio, you know, we just, we, we suddenly became at ease and thought, look, it's no big deal. Let's talk to people. Um, we're into, I'm interested in communicating. So that, that became, that became fun as well. So it just kind of became easy. It became a different, different thing. Challenges, the challenges were different, but, um, yeah, I do, I do remember thinking, yeah, this could, this could be my job, but it didn't, it's not, it's not like we, I sat back in my laurels and thought, okay, this is some sort of compromise. This is a, we're just going to, we're just going to rock and roll until we die. You know, we're just going to you know, become rock and roll pensioners or something. It, it was, it was like, we've got a, a lot to do. You know, those, those early records, people might love them, but you know, they were flimsy. Some, you know, and, and they, for us, they didn't match up to a lot of the music that we loved. And we started acknowledging that around the time. The, the records could be stronger. And of course, the live shows could be stronger. And they, those, two, those two aspects, making great records, making, uh, having great live shows, is a lot to occupy a bandwidth. Yeah, I mean, the, the change in the live performance was really, I mean, I, I don't think that gets enough credit. I, I remember the first time I saw you guys in Boston in 1997, and it was everything that 20-year-old me wanted the Bell and Sebastian <laughs> show to be. Um, it, it, and, you know, it was sort of uh, shambling was a word that I think got used in a lot of enemy uh, reviews at that time, but it was absolutely, you know, transporting and charming and wonderful. And then, you know, the, the time that I was referring to when I first wrote about you guys, you were playing the Greek theater and you're dancing on stage and, and people bringing people up to dance on stage. And it is, it was a completely different entity. And I don't know if, I don't know that many people that could flip a switch or at least do the training, you know, to go from, uh, I, it's not even fair to say a minor league to a major league. It's a different sport that you were playing. Yeah. I, I think, I, I think that's, that's, that's fair enough. We did our, we did our growing to an extent, we did our growing up in public or that was partly the reason maybe we, we hid away for, the early years because we were thrust in into the limelight after three months of, of forming, you know, a lot of bands, they get, they, they go to school together and they're, you know, they maybe have a two, two or three years touring or something before they, you know, make their big break. But we, we were lucky enough that it just happened overnight. And as well, I was still in the background um, struggling with my, my health. And that was, you know, part of the reason why I couldn't. Um, so, so in those, I think because we were so much more organized then um, you know, we were letting other people help us make the records. We we're letting other people help us with the live show. I wasn't running about doing everything. So suddenly I had energy to become a, a better performer uh, and a better band leader. And yeah, we just started, um, we, we started enjoying it more and 
the nice thing is that we have by that time and uh, and continuing to this day we had this back catalog that we hadn't had a chance to play to people so we never felt like we were touring the record that we just made we were always just you know dipping back into tiger milk dipping back into sinister arrow strap uh, because people never really they hadn't heard these songs live before the first time we came to north america first time we went to brazil so we had this nice uh, catalog and and we felt that we were playing these songs better than than even on the record one fun thing about the new record uh, for me is that it's caused me to kind of go back and interrogate my own relationship to your songs and fandom. And I was realizing something that I absolutely in no way could have realized as a, at a 20 or 25 year old. But like for me, part of the absolute obsession that I had for your records was the like the romantic transport of them. Like because you were singing about a world that was exotic to me, that felt made up. It felt like it was from a novel or from a movie or from a dream. Um, now I've been to the UK and I know that Boots is just like CVS or Walgreens. <laughs> but when you talked about something buying at Boots, what is that? You know, there's no internet to Google. It sounded incredible, like storybook to me. And then now on this new record, um, on a really phenomenal song, like if they're shooting at you, you sing about missing your two kids. And I, I miss my two kids when I go away. So suddenly it is a different relationship because now I'm connecting to the, the specificity and truth in it. But of, but of course, I have to realize that you were always singing from a place of specificity and truth. It just didn't line up. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's the, that's a nice way to to put it. I mean, I was definitely singing just honestly from my own experience, from my heart. Um, my experiences have changed now, but I'm glad that in a sense we've all moved on together. Uh, I'm not trying to trick you. You you know where uh, you know you you can guess where I'm coming from now and. And if there's a different kind of connection, then that's uh, that's interesting. As long as there's a as long as there's a connection, I know that is a very different thing from the from the picture book, uh, from the exotic thing that we painted all those years ago. And I and I get that because because I have that I have that picture of Boston. Or I have that. Did you grow up in Philadelphia? Or, or yeah, I'm from Philadelphia. You know, I have that. I have that picture of Pennsylvania. I have that picture of California. Or Georgia, you know, I have different. Uh, mm-hmm. p- I have very romantic notions of of America, to do with um, you know punk, American hardcore, you know, whatever the things I was into, magazines, comics, and and uh, so I understand that the the exotic of the of the far away. Even my wife, who's from who's brought up in Florida, she and then she she had the hot. She always had this thing for the you know, the, the, the East, the, the, you know, the Northeast. So she ended up in Boston for years yep. and it was amazing to her. You know, the first time it snowed, she was like, oh, this is the greatest day of my life. You know, I never want to leave. And the first time she saw mountains and, and then, you know, she, so I think she had this thing about Scotland and then she ended up in Scotland and then she ended up, ended up married to me. Uh, and, um, doesn't seem exotic anymore. <laughs> <laughs> the exotic can become the quotidian pretty quickly. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. She, I think if she could snap her fingers and be in California, that would suit her down to the ground. At least a couple months of the year, probably. Yeah, yeah. Um, so for as much as we're talking about the past, um, there is an echo of the past in the new record because um, you did end up, because you were not able to travel to California to record it, you did end up working at home in Glasgow and recording it. And is this the f- fair to say, is this the first record you've done in Glasgow in, in quite some time, right? Cause I know you were in California recording, you were in Atlanta for a record. Was it like going back in time because of that? 
Um, not so much because we have we have graduated towards this moment. We've um, uh, we 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 have done some recording in the in our rehearsal space. Uh, you know, we did we actually did the EPs. That was the first time that we we did them in a bunch of different little right. studios in Glasgow. Um, so I think the, the the record company is kind of stressing this is the first proper LP project that that we've done, which is in a sense is true. And and it's also important that it's it's self produced. You know, we 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 didn't use outside producers. And um, so that, in a sense, that was like going back. But um, but it's funny because the old studio is only is only two hundred yards away, and it, it feels like a lifetime ago. Um, you know that that was a big old church building with a proper studio in the basement. Whereas now, we, you know, and during during COVID, we converted our little two story um, practice space and office. We 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 made a bunch of little rooms that everybody could go in and connected all the wires up. And, uh, we were, I was super happy making, making music there. That was the best use of the lockdown time. I think. It, it is amazing, not just to hear you talk about it, but to hear the record itself, how healthy you guys seem. And, you know, I feel like there's not a great history of bands with over five members maintaining healthy relationships over the decades but there's so many wonderful lyrics on the record about um you know they're just basically rooted in a, a sense of like this is returning to our original theme but presence and perspective and and kind of gratitude and it, and and I think it's kind of remarkable it's honestly kind of inspiring to hear um that's nice of you to say thank you very much um we do realize that uh, that you know sometimes we I, I do have a lot of gratitude and if you can make it a long time with a group of people in a creative endeavor i feel is you're almost like mining mining for gold you're at that place where you've you've you're you've found a seam of gold and and because you know each other so well and every time you get together something good happens so we're just while while the going's good uh we're just being being creative uh everybody's more than ever, people bring in musical ideas. On that record, there's a musical idea from every single member who's, you know, like who's, who brought a seed of the, the song in and got it started. And the record starts with, a, with a, a great song called Young and Stupid, which is proven to be a hit in my uh, drives to school with the girls because we continue the illusion that stupid is a bad word. And you say it like 35 times on the song. So it's basically like playing them a, like Dr. Dre and Snoop song at this point. <laughs> and somehow that gives them permission to say it. So thank you for that. Um, but uh, I, I guess that just the, the nature of that song and looking back did make me wonder if there are any specific eras of the band that you actively feel nostalgia for, or are you even a nostalgic person? I'm a little bit, I'm, I'm as nostalgic, I think, as a writer needs to be, or you want to be. I, I was. You know, during actually before lockdown and during lockdown, I'd started writing a, a book, a kind of autobiographical novel. And if I wasn't if I wasn't nostalgic, I wouldn't be interested in in the past. So I think I am. I'm interested in the the characters from the past. I think about them. I extrapolate their stories. I wonder what's happened to them. Um, so yeah, I'm pretty nostalgic. I mean, when I talk about young and stupid, I think I'm that was that was the era of the eighties when, before I got sick, right. you know, because to me, th there was a sort of golden era there because I had energy to burn. Um, I felt like such a different person, um, before that cutoff point that, um, it really, it feels like a movie. 
considering that the, the the band has changed so much and, and your own life has changed so much, I wonder that when you get on stage, and hopefully you know, you'll know you be on stage again soon, which is fantastic, every time you play a show, you're going to play Boy With The Arab Strap, for example. Is it time travel for you when you play that song live? Does it put you back into the shoes of the of the person who wrote that song? Or is it are you present with it in that moment, singing it to that crowd as who you are now? Yeah, a little bit of both. A nice combination. Um, maybe not so much Arab Strap because that's become such a live sort of vibe. Um, yeah. it, it's something different. But I think many of the kind of strum along ones is sort of things like Century Fakers or Mayfly or If You Feel Sinister, Boy Done Wrong Again. Those ones that I still enjoy playing when we do play them, I, I, I'm kind of right back in the moments when, when I wrote them. And because they all have a, they all have a feeling, you know, they all have a, they, you, they have a, an imprint of, of a moment that when the, when the song was started, uh, your reason for writing quite often for me, it's a geographical thing. You can remember the place. And so often I'm on stage, but I'm playing the song, but I'm right back with the person in the place uh, where the song started. You saying that just made me think of um, one of my favorite songs of yours, one of the earliest, which is it, 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 just the fact that you were, I don't know how old you were when you wrote it, but probably in your 20s and you announced that your wandering days were over. Then you were done in your 20s. <laughs> I mean, it's a song It's a song about packing it in, right? It's, it's such well, a specific... Well, the funny thing is, it's actually positive. Um, what, what I was meaning by that was that that was actually written, that song was written uh, maybe a day or so after uh, the day that I perceived that the band actually got together, which was, I kind of, I met Isabel, uh, Isabel Campbell on the 1st of January at a New Year's party in 1996, 95, 96 on the cusp. And I kind of, and I'd only just met Stevie before that. And, uh, and, and then I, I just met Crispy. So I just met all these people just around about that time. And that, that's why I wrote my wandering days. Uh, wrote Being when, alone. Or yeah. Open. Yeah. Cause I, you know, I thought, well, I've got, I've got a purpose now. I've got these people. Um, so maybe this is, you know, the, my one band band is over. That was the, that was yeah. the meaning. Yeah. Speaking of the past, and we did just mention boy, of the Arab strap did, did Aiden and Malcolm ever forgive you for that song? Is that, is that, <laughs> is that, I know. Were I they know, okay with it? I never really asked them. I think maybe I'm guessing that. I mean, I never meant to cause offence, and I was surprised if it did cause offence. I think if there was any offence, then they were maybe, you know, maybe they were exaggerating somewhat. I'm, I'm, I'm sure they weren't too annoyed. Uh, I just, I mean, I never thought to ask them. I, I just did stuff. Uh, I never, I never thought to ask them is okay if if we call the LP that. I mean, it's, I think it would have been okay to write the song. Obviously, you can't really, mm-hmm. you can't control what you write a song about. It's, and 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 in a sense, the 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 song alludes to our time when we were playing gigs with those guys in England. That was like the, what you know, our first kind of gigs in London and stuff. Um, so so that was kind of truthful. How do you feel as someone who, as we said at the beginning? Um, you know, has some familiarity and some comfort of being a little bit removed from the world. How are you feeling about getting back out there? Oh, uh, well, to play shows. To play shows. Uh, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll be, I'll be absolutely fine with it. I'm very yin and yang. I get, I get very comfortable. I try to, you know, live in the present time when, 
when lockdown happened, I was like, okay, this is going to happen for a while. And then, and, and then when the tour is coming up, I'll be, you know, I'm, I'll be, I'll be happy enough when it starts. Uh, it'll, it'll be fine. Then I'll start really enjoying it. And then I won't want the tour to end. So um, I have to ask this um, mentioned before I was telling you that I'm from Philadelphia. So this is painful to, for me to ask, but do you think the Mets are legit this year? I have no clue. Have they started well? Yes, they've started well. I, I didn't know if you were still as as devoted a fan as you once were. I, I wasn't. I haven't. I haven't followed them. Then this year just shows you. Ever it's been a bit of. I must admit, the last few months has been a blur. So I've missed the. <laughs> I missed the start of the season. So um, do you know what the what their their rating is just now? What's the? Oh, they're already like seven and three or something. <laughs> it's, and, it's, uh, it's, that's it's I, I, way too early to tell though, isn't it? It is. It just, this is making me feel good because giving you a chance to potentially crow about the Mets on my podcast was an enormous act of, uh, of, of graciousness on my part. And yeah. so I'm thrilled that, I, that you didn't take the bait. I, I'm oh, very yeah. happy about that. No, no, anything, anything can happen and probably will. <laughs> that's, that's the, uh, that's the pull quote for the whole conversation. Um, <laughs> Stuart, thank you so much for taking this time to talk with me. It's such a pleasure. Yeah, you're very welcome. That was fun. That was quite a nostalgic trip, actually. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, I it's your the music has been so important to me for so long that it's just it, it's like it's like talking about my own past in a way. So it's always a thrill. <laughs> nice. Great. 